Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson Podcast. Today, a fascinating conversation with a Silicon Valley entrepreneur who's put millions of dollars of his own money into COVID-related philanthropic causes, practical ones. But because these causes are different than certain propagandists and interests want to be pursued, he's been marginalized and smeared. Undeterred, he's outspoken about matters that a lot of people want him to keep quiet about. Steve Kirsch is executive director of a group he founded called Vaccine Safety Research Foundation. An interesting fellow. He says he's offered CDC officials a million dollars to simply have a four-hour conversation with him about COVID treatments and controversies. Nobody's taken him up on it. That's just one unconventional thing that he's done to try to cut through the propaganda and disinformation on this important topic. And because he's been off the narrative on COVID, he's been thoroughly smeared through a campaign that includes the usual suspects like his Wikipedia bio page, the same group of media outlets and blogs all trying to discredit him so that people will not consider him a valid source of information. Trust your cognitive dissonance on this and use your common sense. In fact, recent history is sadly teaching us that when Wikipedia or big tech or establishment government officials or fake fact checkers, when they tell us something is disinformation and that something is true, we've come to understand it's the opposite many times, just like Orwell's 1984. But I digress. Steve Kirsch is an MIT graduate, and as MIT Tech Review wrote, quote, In the early days of the pandemic, as billions of dollars poured into the hunt for novel treatments and vaccines, veteran Silicon Valley entrepreneur Steve Kirsch did what he's always done. He went looking for an underdog. The article goes on. Since making a fortune as the founder of InfoSeek, an early search engine that was the Google of its day, Kirsch has spent tens of millions of dollars fighting humanity's biggest threats. He prefers iconoclastic approaches whether by directly funding asteroid detection or advocating for nuclear power to combat global warming. Then the article says, by March 2020, he'd settled on the idea of searching for COVID treatments in the pre-existing pharmacopoeia. The premise made sense, says the article. Most experts were predicting vaccines would take years, while finding helpful drugs with known safety profiles could shortcut the approval process. So that gives a little bit of background Steve Kirsch was doing what many scientists said was the obvious thing to do when there are novel outbreaks. Even Dr. Anthony Fauci once endorsed this. You look at current medicine that's approved on the market and see how it can be repurposed or used to fight the new disease. And that way, you don't have to go through new approvals or rushed approvals. Not very controversial, at least it didn't used to be, before something like that came to be controversialized by forces that decided that we should go another route for COVID than the established and long-held route. More background from another article published a few months ago. It says, With little government funding available for such work, Kirsch founded the COVID-19 Early Treatment Fund, putting in a million dollars of his own money and bringing in donations from Silicon Valley luminaries. Kirsch's website lists the foundations of Mark Benioff and Elon Musk as donors. Over the last 18 months, the article says, the fund has granted at least $4.5 million to researchers testing the COVID-fighting powers of drugs that are already FDA-approved 
for other diseases. Now, this article goes on to smear Kirsch. And when I say trust your cognitive dissonance on this, what I'm trying to say is, does it really make sense that virtually every outlet, every article that was initially in the past written about Kirsch saw him as a rational source, a super educated guy with a scientific mind, a philanthropic source of good information or funding for good causes. But then all of a sudden, when he's off the narrative on COVID, seeking to initially repurpose existing drugs, which is, again, what most scientists said was the way to go, that suddenly when he's off the narrative now, he's to be viewed as a guy that used to make a lot of sense and suddenly went kind of crazy and kind of nuts. That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? The media has done that to quite a few scientific figures and public officials, not considered controversial or off the reservation. Suddenly, when they saw things differently, as so many thousands, if not millions of scientists did, when they saw things differently on the COVID narrative than powerful public officials and pharmaceutical interests, well, they were smeared. Suddenly, we're to believe all of them just went nuts, used bad judgment, went off the rails. I don't think that's really the case. With Kirsch, a great deal of organized efforts have gone into trying to disparage him, a guy who cannot accurately be described as anti-vaccine and is not anti-vaccine. He himself says he was double-vaxxed with Moderna. But he's looking with a neutral and common-sense scientific eye rather than through the propaganda lens that so many have tried to get us to look through. In other words, they're telling us, don't believe your lying eyes. Well, today I'm getting Steve Kirsch's thoughts on where we stand with COVID vaccines and his recent endorsement of a global pilot initiative to start looking at the health and safety implications of vaccinated pilots flying commercial planes, considering the adverse events that are being reported. Here's Steve Kirsch. Give me just a brief bit of background about yourself professionally and kind of what brought you to the place you are today. Uh, sure. I'm I've been uh, always interested in computers. I have two uh, degrees in electrical engineering and computer science from MIT. And since then I went on to start about seven high tech companies in Silicon Valley, uh, two of them with billion dollar market caps. And, um, and now I'm uh, uh, retired. Um, and the reason is that the pandemic basically caused me to have to leave my most recent uh, job, uh, leave the office. And I looked at doing uh, early, uh, I was doing early treatments. I was funding early treatment uh, research because that's the fastest, safest and cheapest way to end the pandemic. So I funded work on hydroxychloroquine, on, uh, on fluvoxamine, uh, I did some work on interferon lambda, and, uh, and Camistat and, and other drugs. And it turns out that about five of the drugs that I worked on were very successful and proven to work, but uh, were not recommended uh, at all by the NIH. But even despite that, I still trusted the, uh, these government organizations. I just thought they were incompetent. And when, uh, so I took the uh, Moderna uh, vaccine. My, I was doubly vaccinated. My wife was doubly vaccinated. My kids were doubly vaccinated. And then about a month later, I started hearing horror stories from my friends. So I had uh, one friend who had three relatives who died a week after getting the vaccine, and they were 
all perfectly healthy uh, before they got the vaccine and then uh, all died uh, within a week after getting uh, their vaccines. Uh, so uh, I, I was just uh, astonished by that. And then uh, I had one of my, uh, the vendors that come to my house. I mean, I've got a gardener and I have a carpet cleaner uh, who we call occasionally when we have spills. And we called him and, and he came and, and uh, he was wearing a mask and I asked him, hey, what's up with that? How come you haven't been fully vaccinated? He said he got one shot. And he had a heart attack two minutes after he got the shot. And he's been in terrible pain ever since. And so he's been in pain for the past, for over a year now. And uh, there doesn't seem to be anything that the doctors can do for him. And so at that point, I had seen visible uh, vaccine injury with my own two eyes. And in fact, his wife also had a pretty severe uh, reaction uh, to the vaccine. So I knew what they were telling me was not safe and was not true. It was not safe and effective. Uh, these anecdotes couldn't have happened or were unlikely to have happened. And so I went to the VARES system and verified that the VARES system was just flashing, you know, red alert, red alerts uh, since. And VARES, for people who don't know, is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System where even they could report themselves for friends and family because a lot of doctors aren't properly reporting as they're legally required to do. If there's an event after vaccination, it doesn't have to be linked because it's not up to you to decide if it's linked or not. That's It's supposed to go in the database so experts can study if there's a huge spike in a certain kind of illnesses. But go ahead, you went to the VAERS database? Yeah, and what I found was astonishing. I found a 1200 times increase in the rate of pulmonary embolism. I found that heavy bleeding, heavy menstrual bleeding uh, after vaccination was uh, reported at 8,800 times normal. And then the rates of, uh, of other things like Bell's palsy were off the charts. And nobody was saying anything about these uh, very high, abnormally high, and impossibly high to explain adverse events. And so we tried to reach out to, I tried to reach out to Stephen A. Anderson, because I saw him on a video. He was the one that, that had that famous slide. Remember that slide where it had all these adverse events? And he just skipped over that in the presentation. But yeah, he that said, was at the, um, for context, was that an FDA meeting? I think it was an FDA CDC meeting. meeting. Yeah. Yeah, it was that, either an FDA or a CDC meeting. An adverse event slide came up pretty early on when they were making a presentation studying how the vaccines were being handled in the population. And if, if I remember correctly, people caught that that slide came up, so it existed. And then, yeah, they just sort of skipped over, but people were able to go back and freeze frame and see what they already knew at the time that they weren't really addressing much at the meeting. Yes. And... You know, at the time, I thought, well, this was this is a list of adverse events that might be uh, that might happen for any vaccine, and therefore it's this list, and they probably skipped over that because they didn't want to alarm the public into thinking that these adverse events were were um, associated with this vaccine. So. I thought in my mind, maybe they're just trying not to call attention to something that would be, you know, essentially misinformation uh, because it's not associated with this uh, vaccine. Um, 
be interesting to go look at that list and, and compare it to the VARES system so we could see. But um, I, I haven't done that. It doesn't matter. I mean, these people are corrupt. Well, I mean, there's, there, there's, before we go forward on that, I want to mention I did the same thing with VARES. And of course, it, it's rightfully pointed out by people who operate VARES and the federal government that the adverse events reported doesn't, they don't mean that event was caused by vaccine because they're capturing a lot of data. On the other hand, I think it's very useful to see trends which do stick out when millions and millions of people use a medicine or a drug like a vaccine. And yes. this is one way in which I broke the story years ago that Viagra causes blindness, something the company was denying at the time, but it became very obvious when I looked through the VAERS adverse event database, actually not VAERS, the FDA one for drugs, not vaccines, other drugs. And you can see these spikes and you wonder why and they ultimately acknowledged that, by the way, but I saw it sooner than they acknowledged it and put it on the label. And there should be FDA and scientists looking through this the same way we do. But it seems to me, based on my experience, what they actually do is they look through there and then try to discount the things they see. Okay, there's a spike in this. We have to prove how that's unrelated to the medicine. Instead of taking that early information and saying, wow, we didn't know this could be related. What is the biological mechanism we should put out some alerts for people. So that's my take on it. I mean, what you saw and what people can see for themselves, I too have culled through the database and written some articles from early on and I've updated them noticing spikes in blood related disorders, bleeding and clots and all different kinds of things in the Bell's palsy, but also the Gambari syndrome, which is another kind of paralysis, but all kinds of paralysis. I mean, there are spikes in things that have since been acknowledged and then there are other spikes and things they haven't even yet gotten to. So go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think that's good context. Yes. Um, what you said is absolutely true. And so we knew it was absolutely true when we reached out to the FDA and we said, hey, we found some safety signals that you guys have missed in the VARES system. Do you want to talk about it? No, they don't want to talk about it. Yeah, like you could call Stephen A. Anderson, who's supposed to be the guy who's watching VARES like a hawk at the FDA. I've called him and I've emailed him, and there's no question that he's gotten my communications, and there is no interest at all in talking to me about what I have found, because we've gone through the VARES system, and we have it in sorted order from high to low of the thousands of symptoms which are elevated uh, abnormally, because they claim the FDA claims that oh, you're just reporting back background events at a at a higher rate because everybody's now more vaccine aware and more aware of the VAERS system. That's why the numbers are so high. No, that's not why the numbers are so high because we're not seeing the normal events. There's a normal profile of here's how many uh, Guillain-Barre, here's how many Bell's palsy, here's how many deaths, and they should all be in this portion of what is normal. They should all be, you know, relative, you know, like, like heart disease is higher than cancer, which is higher than accidents, which is, you know, and they, that is the normal profile. Now, if people are just over-reporting and the vaccine is doing nothing, then we should just see that normal profile just elevated. And we're not, it's not even close. So again, so, the, ar the arguments seem to always benefit whatever they want to prove, which is 
totally unscientific. You know, in science, that's not what you're supposed to do. But they will often say, um, well, things are overreported. That's why you're they're explaining away why you're seeing so much instead of investigating them properly. And in, in my view, although behind the scenes, they may be doing more than they tell us with that. I suspect they are. But um, the fact is, with these databases, scientists have established previously that events, illnesses after medicine are underreported by anywhere from a thousand times to something like a hundred thousand times. It sounds unbelievable, but yes. this is because people who are already ill and taking medicine and may die or have an event, sometimes it's probably frequently attributed to their illness and not the medicine. So that's why drugs have been pulled off the market after 12 deaths sometimes. It's not because it only killed 12 people. It's because scientists believe that there are many fold higher being injured by the medicine. And these are just small sig signals. I think that's likely the case with the vaccines because we know from other interviews I've done, doctors are not reporting as they're legally required to do illnesses after this vaccination many times. And so I think these events tend to be underreported also. I know so many people who have had strokes and blood problems and heart attacks and fainting after a vaccine may not be caused by the COVID vaccine, but it might be. And it's not being reported according to when I asked them, you know, did your doctor report this? Has anybody asked you about it? I don't think these events are being reported. Right. I did a survey and I was looking at deaths under 18, either from COVID or due to the vaccine. And I got 12 responses the, the last time I, I looked. All 12 were kids who died right after getting the vaccine. And it was pretty certain. They're, I mean, they were all very healthy. And then within a week, they're dead. Unexpectedly, they just die um, from the vaccine. And, you know, for, it's not from the vaccine, of course, but it's, it is from uh, heart attacks. It is from bleeding in the brain. It is from pulmonary embolisms. You know, it's from these, all of these symptoms that are associated with the vaccine. So here are 12 child deaths. Now, if anything, a child death should always be reported uh, to VAERS because there is a parent there to report it to, you know, even if the doctor doesn't, the parent would. None of those 12 deaths were reported. Now, if you can't report a child death, like an, like an old person who lives alone and nobody knows what their vaccination status was, I can understand that, you know, the ambulance takes them, they don't know the medical history, bam, doesn't get reported. But a child death, that has to be reported. The parent would be furious, zero reports. So just from that one anecdote, we, it, it would suggest that it's at least 12 times underreported. And when you actually do the analysis for anaphylaxis, which should always be reported by the medical professionals because it's required. And we know what the rates of anaphylaxis are for this vaccine. It's like a sudden shock to your body that you could, could kill you or make you very ill temporarily. Yeah, it makes it hard for you to breathe, basically. And it, it and could potentially, it's life-threatening if it's not, it's potentially life-threatening if it's not um, immediately uh, addressed. And so those should always be reported. Those were being reported at the time at a 41 times under-reporting factor, meaning for every 41 events that happens, there's only one event that got reported. So if anaphylaxis, which is the single most obvious 
reaction required by law to report was only reported at one in 41 cases, then how can they say it's just being, the numbers are high because it's being overreported? They're lying to you. And when they present at the, uh, the CDC meeting, which they did yesterday, they always present, well, there were only four cases of myocarditis in the various system or, you know, they just report the number that they saw and they don't multiply by 41 because they then know the numbers better. They know be better off than the doing charts. That. Right, and so they, they, they mislead the panel by not talking about the underreporting factor uh, at all. And I computed it per their guidelines, per CDC guidelines. You, you compute an underreporting factor of 41. Even with this enhanced visibility, the only the most severe things will be reported at 41 times. Something less severe and less obvious like death is going to be reported at maybe one out of 100. So it means the 12,000 deaths in Ferris are probably more like 1.2 million, or that there are at least, I guarantee you, there are at least a half a million people who have been killed uh, by the vaccine. And I know that now because I did a survey of people um, and I asked them, hey, and you know anyone in your family has been, who, who's been killed by COVID? Do you know anyone who has been killed by the vaccine? And you know anyone who's died from heart disease? Do you know how many people have died from uh, cancer? And so I know what the relative rates are and nobody has done this study. And there's a reason that nobody has done this survey is because the results are devastating. It shows that there are at least twice as many people who have died from the vaccine as have died from COVID. So if you believe, which I don't, that a million people have died from COVID, then 2 million people have died because of the vaccine. And that's very troubling because COVID has been around for now two and a half years, or you know, over two years now. And the vaccines have only been around for you know, a year plus. And so you'd expect to see twice as many, if they were equally deadly, you would expect to see twice as many uh, reports of people, you know, I lost a relative from, from COVID. If, there were, if it was really the same level of kill factor, but no, the numbers were actually higher for uh, the people who died from the vaccine. Which hasn't so been out as long. When you adjust, keep, yeah, your, keep, your, keep your place. Pause just, to, for, pause just a moment for a couple points here. First of all, obviously you're not anti-vaccine. You took the vaccine. I'm right. not anti-vaccine. My child was fully vaccinated. You know, that's used by propagandists. That was a phrase that wasn't even used before the early... 1990s, at least widespread, it was generated by vaccine industry propagandists to try to quiet the journalists and scientists who were looking into, as, as one should do, side effects and issues with, with these medicines. So getting that out of the way, um, I also want to say that if people want other information, I'm not going to counter and banter with you about other contrary information or other opinions. It's easy to find that because that's really dominated the information landscape. If you want to hear what CDC says about it, if you want to hear what Dr. Fauci says about all of this, you know, look at cdc.gov, I think it is. It's easy to find those counterpoints and people can do that themselves. Um, go ahead and if you will finish where I again interrupted you, my apologies. And then let's get to what we're talking about mostly today, which is how this impacts or how this factors into the pilot population. 
Oh, okay. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the point of my research is that I basically see a rock and I lift it up to see what's under the rock. And so I'm always looking to see, hey, is this data right? Can it be validated? Uh, you know, and so I did like five different surveys. I did a survey where people would say, so how many people do you know who died before a month before they were supposed to be vaccinated? How many people died a month after they were there? They actually did get vaccinated, you know, for each of the three doses. Guess what? <laughs> the death rate after vaccine was consistently higher by factor of five for the first shot, factor of eight for the second shot, factor of two to three for the third shot, and a factor of 1.2 for the fourth shot. In other words, it's dose dependent. So all of this is just observational data. It's like looking at the VARES data. It's in the analysis of the VARES data that you can determine causality, that you can see, oh, it's dose related. Oh, it doesn't um, match. You know? So there's all sorts of analysis that you do post event. And it's having all of these events captured, which is important for you to do this statistical analysis, but that you can't determine causality from the VARES system that is all hand-waving argument that that's simply not true. VARES is just a collection of observations. And once you have a collection of observations, you can make inferences from those observations. And you can make the inference like, hmm, abnormally high rate of death uh, after the vaccine. Now, and so the question is what caused that? Now, you can't necessarily prove that it was the vaccine, but you do that through a process of elimination. You basically say, hey, got this huge event spike. Now, what could cause people to die from bleeding in the brain at a super high rate all of a sudden? Well, it's got to be something that you inject because something you eat doesn't cause that. Was there an injection? And, and, it's, and it's in massive numbers. It's, it's like unbelievable, massive numbers. What is massively injected into people that causes uh, this? There's only one answer, which is it was the vaccine. That was the only thing all these people had in common that could have caused what was observed. That's causality. And there are five tests for causality. It's, they're known as the Bradford Hill criteria and they're all satisfied. So, you know, and you can take any of these surveys that I have done, any of them, and you know, I'm just, and you can replicate them for yourself to validate that I am not telling you something that you shouldn't believe. You shouldn't believe me. You shouldn't believe the government. You should believe your own eyes. You can collect your own data and you can do your own analysis. And what I like to do is whenever I'm in a large audience, I asked the people in the room, hey, how many people know somebody who died um, a month before they were scheduled to get their vaccine? Now, one or two hand raises. How many people know someone who died a month after they got their vaccine? Lots of hand raises. So it's you a know, way one, other, one other thing, Steve. Scientists will tell you, always said, vaccine adverse events, to the extent they occur, a lot of people I've heard say, oh, I was fine the day after I got my shot, so I guess I'm good. What people don't understand is adverse events can arise months later and years later. So what yes. we're seeing now, 
if they are connected, these events connected to the vaccines, um, you know, likely there will be more things that emerge in the years to come. And this is what may be cause for concern with pilots. And I've thought about that getting on airplanes because it was said to me, I, I flew all over during the pandemic, continued working and went to almost every state in the union. And I did wonder, since some of the airlines had people protesting and some of the pilots concerned that if they got a shot and then were flying, could this be dangerous? There was a whistleblower with the military, sort of a flight surgeon type doctor who flagged a bunch of pilots who'd had terrible effects after vaccination and she didn't want to clear them to fly. And she was, I guess, told to keep her mouth shut and removed from that assignment. So these are safety concerns. What is your concern when it comes to the pilot public and what, they, what they're what they pushing for now? Oh, well, look, there's, there's no question um, that there's a huge risk to the public here. And there's no question that they don't want to look. What they should be doing, because like uh, I know uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Teresa Long, uh, for example, and I won't say who told me, but the rates of myocarditis in the military are off the charts. I mean, it, it is, um, I've heard stories from people that it's like 4% of pilots in the military who have myocarditis. Um, and that's just the ones that, where they know about it because most pilots in the military will not say anything about um, uh, that they were injured because they don't want to be taken off the job. So if they have a, a reaction, they're not going to tell their doctor. And that's true for commercial pilots as well. Um, so uh, for instance, Bob Snow, he had an, um, uh, he basically uh, almost died after he landed the plane. And he had uh, symptoms. Um, I'm Bob sure he Snow? had symptoms. I'm sorry. I don't know who Bob Snow is. Oh, Bob Snow is an American Airlines pilot. Okay. He landed the plane, and then he, uh, he, 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 he passed out. Is he um, one who testified at one of those hearings? No, no. This is fairly recent. Okay. Um, so, uh, he he successfully landed the the plane and uh, was pulling into the gate, and then he suffered, uh, a, I think, a, a massive. Uh, cardiac arrest or, or uh, you know, probably a cardiac arrest. And he, um, he, he, if there weren't people on the plane to resuscitate him, he would have died uh, in the cockpit of the plane. And had he had that event minutes earlier, just minutes earlier, uh, people in that plane would have all died. Steve, we have, just a couple minutes left with a heart out. What would you like to say in the last two or three minutes to people listening to this now? What's important for them to know? What, what message you, would you like them to hear? Uh, the look, the government knows, people in the government know that these vaccines are super dangerous. They know that these vaccines are killing people at a very high rate. They may not know that uh, people are being killed at a higher rate by the vaccine than uh, COVID. They may not know that the cure is worse than the disease, but they surely know that massive numbers of people have been killed and that there are massive numbers of vaccine injured. But they're denying all of this. They're even denying the people in plain sight. I, there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions. I mean, there, there are 
there were really millions of vaccine injured people in the country and they're all being marginalized. Facebook groups with hundreds of thousands of vaccine injured people were just deleted so that the vaccine injured can't find out how many of them there are. So they basically, they see a group, Facebook sees a group and they hit delete so that they can't determine how many people are really uh, vaccine injured. So it's, it's deliberate and it is suppressing the, the injury and the deaths and none of them will go on camera. I offered a million dollars to any member of the CDC or FDA outside committee to meet with me for a few hours and you get the million dollars not for winning the debate but just for having a meeting with me that I can record for four hours where I ask a bunch of questions. Nobody would do it for a million dollars. So I raised it. I said, name your price. I realize your time is expensive. Your four hours is expensive. And I said, if a million dollars for four hours isn't worth your time, then you tell me how much I would need to pay for the four hours. And nobody got back to me. You know, so these people know that what they are doing is wrong. These people know, and, and you know, no, help, no public health official will dare to come on camera with me to answer a bunch of questions. They know, and the only way they can win this argument is to suppress people like me who ask intelligent, critical questions that are based on the data in plain sight that we either collect ourselves or were collected by the United States government or from the UK government. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and that if so, you'll leave me a good review, subscribe and share it with your friends. Also check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours. And now you can support independent journalism causes. It's never been more important by visiting CherylAckeson.com and clicking on the store tab. There are some thought-provoking and fun products designed exclusively for independent and free thinkers like you with proceeds benefiting independent reporting causes. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.